one uh, means, uh, upayas, or upayas of Pali word for skillful means that I found helpful <coughs> during my training years in meditation was what I call uh, l inner listening. Like, like we listen to the sound of silence or we listen to the voice of greed or anger or doubt or uncertainty. It's a, putting yourself in, the, in, the, in that position of a listener to what's going on in your mind so that you you can you can actually deliberately uh you know if you feel anger or that then you you're angry with somebody then you you listen to the anger like you're listening and you can actually kind of think it out and and uh and and listen to the the kind of feeling and the the mood recognize the mood and the feeling of it So this helps one to, to uh, say, begin to see that, that uh, say, such a, an emotion as anger is something that is, uh, it, you're objectifying it, you're, you're studying it, rather than just trying to stop it or get rid of it. So sometimes letting go of something doesn't mean, means actually, uh, Maybe getting a good hold on it. It's a paradox. <laughs> but the hold on it is deliberate rather than, than a habit. So then this would uh, say, it's like, like the ability to listen or hear things is, is uh, like we could, when we're in a dark room or we're alone or with people or we're in the sunlight or whether we're healthy or sick or or we're successful or we're failing uh this we can always kind of listen to to the to the feelings that that we're experiencing now the the this the tendency is to make Judgment, like, let's say, say in monastic life, it's easy to say a good monk shouldn't be angry. Something like this, kind of an ideal, and take an ideal uh, position of a good bhikkhu is uh, filled with loving kindness and kind to everyone and, and doesn't get angry, is not greedy, and is. Uh, Trustworthy, noble. They take all the the best of of the uh, that we can think of, of of what somebody should be, and then then we can say this is what this is what I should be as a monk. So, when when we idealize something like monastic life or 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 ourselves or somebody else, then we. We're we're creating the ideal is is a superlative, or the best that you can possibly think of. And then the reality of life 
is this way. It's, it's not an ideal, it is what it is. Sometimes it reaches a peak where it's kind of at its best, but then it doesn't stay there. It's like contemplating the, um, a flower at its peak, or say a rose, a beautiful rose, when it's, when it's just, you can see it, you can maybe look at, notice a rose when it's just a bud and it's just developing and then it, then it unfolds and then it reaches its peak where it's and in its most perfect form and, and fullness and fragrance. That's a peak moment. They say that's a perfect rose. But then after it reaches its peak, what happens? It starts disintegrating, wilting. And so then we think, you know, we can, we could make plastic roses that at their peak where, you know, the, make a, a, a kind of artificial rose that looks like a rose at its peak. And then you can make fl- artificial flowers now that are very beautiful. But say, these, this is, but we also know they're artificial. Isn't it? We, we, we know that that's not, they're just pretending to be flowers. And we're trying to pretend that they are real flowers, but but the they, the the real flowers uh, they're following the laws of nature. So they they do have their peak moments where things are at their best, and then we idealize that, and we think life should be lo- always at this this peak of where everything's at its best, because we can create uh, ideals, ideal, uh, you know, where where things are at their best the perfect mother, the perfect father, the perfect husband, the perfect wife, perfect children, how, how everyone should be if, if everything was perfect, perfect woman, the perfect man, perfect prime minister. Perfect society. So note this: this uh, we, uh, we, Western. I think Western civilization is uh, a very idealistic, tends towards this idealism. Very much so. Where, say, in Asia, I think they've been much more uh, practical in kind of recognizing the, the uh, that uh, human frailties are part of human existence. So sometimes in Asia you you get the, an attitude of, well, corruption. It's okay. It's just part of human. <laughs> 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 or they're willing to overlook all kinds of things because they, 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 they think, well, that's human nature. Mm-hmm. I remember being shocked one time when I was uh, an, a novice monk in uh, in Nongkai, which is on the borders of Laos. The place where you cross the, over the Mekong River to go to Laos, to Vientiane, and when I was a novice monk, this is 1966. Uh, they were having uh, Laos was still hadn't become a communist country yet, and we could cross over and go back and forth from from Nongkai very easily. And then I heard that that a general uh, from the Royal Lao Army was angry with the head of the Royal, Royal uh, Lao Army in Vientiane 
And this, this was in a town south of Yangon, and he took his airplane and came and bombed the headquarters of the Royal <laughs> Army or Air Force or whatever it was, his own people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Laos was already having these conflicts with the communists and so forth. And, and so this is quite a, you know, and I thought this is just terrible that he should do this. So I was talking to one of the Thai monks in the monastery, and we were discussing this, and, and he says, yeah, but he says, well, you know, it's just, uh, that's what human beings are like. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, and that struck me uh, when he said that, because, uh, you know, coming from my background, from the kind of 50s uh, America and Berkeley and all that, you, you think and you think it shouldn't be that people shouldn't do those things and and there's something wrong and you get kind of caught in a mental state thinking that that uh, feeling indignant and this shouldn't be happening and this this mental this sense of indignation was very strong with me and then this monk just pointed out that the human nature people do, can do these things and and I really appreciated that reflection because. I never quite thought of it like that before. I never seen it in those terms. I mean, it, it could be used as an excuse to do anything you want. It's just human nature. But it also uh, made me think in a different way that there, that that human beings do things like that. That our humans, uh, human, we're not coming from peak moments all the time, or from the, the noblest intentions, or from selflessness or from from true patriotism or true love of our country or or real wisdom in regards to solving problems national problems or economic problems that we that people do foolish things we see it we read in the news we hear all the time that human wisdom operating thing is is uh, is relatively rare, <laughs> or oftentimes it is. It isn't. It isn't so rare. It's just not noticed, because it may not look like very much. Where more extravagant gestures and and extreme things like scandals and and events on, on a grand scale are, are news. But a good mother taking care of her children would never make the news. It goes unnoticed. Something like this, and yet there could be wisdom there operating in a woman taking care of her children. There might be a lot of wisdom in that in in her life, but it might never appear so to anyone. People might might never notice it. When we, with the flow, like there's this, this uh, I was reading some book recently about the, the particle theory and the wave theory, uh, physics, and uh, left brain and right brain. And I realized that, that what, what, what really uh, Buddhism is, is developing is very much the, the, the uh, kind of right brain 
the intuition or the more the wave-like uh, experience because you're, you're, you're really um, you know, developing an awareness around the flow of life rather than on the fixed points of it or the, the where we perceive life is this way or that way. Just notice in how the mind works, the, the intellectual mind kind of uh, petrifies things. In, things become fixed in, in, because we are perceptions. They, we, we perceive something and a perception has a, a fixed quality to it. And, and uh, therefore, when we, when we depend on our ability to perceive things uh, in, in these fixed ways, then our mind is more like going from one particle to another. We're, we see things in kind of, we're not seeing the points between, we're, we're kind of just jumping from one thing to the next. And, and so the... Uh, so we, we tend to see we don't tend to see life as a flow or a flux, but as from from positioning, from from attitudes of, of, of fixed views or perceptions of things, how it should be. Or we see we see ourselves or others with very fixed um, perceptions, like he's like this, he's a he's a kind person, he's a He's a greedy person. She's a selfish person. And we, 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 we can easily hold to these perceptions as being a real person. Where in, in what, what's actually happening is that these perceptions are part of the flux. They, they come and go in con- through consciousness. So in with mindfulness we're we're opening to that to that to that wave that flowing of consciousness uh, the experience of consciousness by letting go of uh, of percep uh, uh, or not grasping the perceptions so perception has its it doesn't mean we 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 get rid of language and we don't perceive anything, we don't name anything, we don't, uh, we, we're not trying to, to deny that function of the mind or to, to dismiss it, but to put it, to, to be able to use it in a way that we're not attached to it, where we can, where we, uh, it, like, like the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, you're taking suffering, its cause, the cessation and the way of non-suffering, those are perceptions, <clears throat> but <clears throat> when you make dukkha into a fixed thing, like there is dukkha, everything is dukkha, everything is unsatisfactory. The, this this way that Buddhism gets interpreted in the West, and the Christians, Christian books oftentimes, Buddha taught everything is suffering, and Jesus taught everything is love. Which which religion would you want? <laughs> There was a book here in England where, uh, for religious education, I saw it myself, used in this country. Um, But it was written by a Christian organization. It it said something similar. 
the Buddha taught everything is suffering. Well, that is a perception that comes like it, uh, it's a, a, what they call a categorical imperative. It's like everything is suffering. It's all, it's all this, the category is, is labeled. And, and, it's, uh, and so one, one, one starts from seeing everything as suffering. I think the Buddha, if I'm a Buddhist, then I see everything as suffering. So then I, I think the you know, eating food is suffering. Uh, every, those flowers are suffering. Um, happiness is suffering. Everything is suffering. And pretty soon you're, you're depressed. <laughs> because you, you, you're, 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 you're coming from a position, you know, that you're, you're starting from everything is suffering. And... And then you, you tend to interpret everything as there's something wrong with it. It's bad. It's not good. It's miserable. And I've seen people do this with Buddhism. Uh, I met a man a few years ago who, who'd been a monk for, for quite a few years, a Buddhist monk. Uh, uh, and he was, and then he disrobed. So I asked him, I said, why did you disrobe? And he said, because there's too much suffering. And he spent years in, in Burma and in places doing meditation retreats. And, and uh, so I said, well, you know, why, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I just began to see everything as suffering. And I said, is that how you interpreted the teachings? He said, well, that's the Buddhist teaching. Everything is suffering. You see, but the, what, what it is, is, is we're making it into a position we take. It's a perception we grasp, and then, then we project it onto everything. You're suffering, you're suffering, you're all suffering. Nuns are suffering. <laughs> Monks are suffering. Lay people are suffering. They're all... Everything is unsatisfactory. So this is the, from grasping this perception of suffering, then I, then I, then I project it. I see only suffering around me, and that's not what the Buddha was doing. Or we can say everything is love. But at least that's a happier way to look at life. They, all you are just loving forms, and the nuns—they're all <laughs> loving, and monks are loving, and everything. So if you're, if you're going to choose a position to take, choose a positive one. You'll have more happiness in your life. You won't get depressed. But they recognize that, that, this, that, that the Buddha didn't say everything is suffering from, as, as something that we grasp, a position we take. And the, the proper way of interpreting the, the first noble truth is is there is suffering. It's a statement. It's pointing to an experience that we all have. That we all experience suffering. And so this, uh, so, so it's from there then we, we start, rather than projecting suffering onto everything, seeing everything is just this all unsatisfactory, it's all, and then we assume that suffering is bad, the kind of logic that comes from that 
is that suffering is bad. So everything is kind of bad in a way. It's not nice. This this world, this this samsara, planet Earth, everything is just. Uh, it was created out of greed, hatred, and delusion, and uh, everything in it operates on greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's all, you know. It's, and pretty soon you you see it only as a as a kind of horrible place. But when we when we use when we when we interpret the first noble truth is there is suffering, then we look at at suffering and say, if we're suffering, if I'm suffering, what is it? Then I, I un- as I said before the last night, I the the uh, prescription is to understand it, not to project, not to believe that everything is suffering and and project it onto experiences of life, but to notice when there is suffering and what what are the causes of it. So this is what what mindfulness is. Mindfulness allows us to to look at at life honestly and, and and to listen to it and observe, watch, pay attention. It's like in in a in a war. I mean, you you hear you, you're always. Saying your enemy, you have to make your enemy in a in a war as 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 uh, they're monsters, they're brutes, they're better off dead. That when you when you want people to go out and fight, you have to make the opponent look like he, he's a re- he's rotten and he'd be better off dead. The world would be better off without them. And so, I mean, if you start. That looking at your enemy as say fellow human beings that suffer like we do that get sick and get old and love their wives and families or feel uh, despair when they uh, in their lives or experience the human emotions and it's hard to develop that sense of wanting to go out and kill them you got to project onto your enemy the monstrous qualities in order to to want to do that. That's what like prejudices are doing. We can see like this here in in Britain with IRA and or and the way that you have to you always have to dwell on the the the, the bad qualities of the British. You have to make out that you know you have to hold up and and remember all the bad things the British have done to the Irish. And then you can feel righteous about going off and killing a few British soldiers or people in Northern Ireland because you're not looking at them as human beings anymore but as uh, the enemy that have done these terrible things. That's projecting from the mind. There's, There's no Dhamma in that. It's merely a you take up, you 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 take these things and then you, then you remember them. Out of context, not as human beings, not as the flow of flux of life, or, or or the experience of, of suffering of of humanity, but saying these people have done this terrible thing to my people, and then, 
then whenever you see somebody, the British person, think, they've done this to my country. That's what a prejudice is. It's they say prejudice is is fixing, you know, holding on to a perception of something, and and then acting from that from that bias from that position. So in the say in Rwanda, the the Hutus and Tutsis, that's what they've been doing, isn't it? Never heard of. Hutus and Tutsis before, and uh, suddenly they make the news for months in in just the uh, two tribes of people that project onto each other all kinds of horrible things and then act on it. When you get to the human side, we have the same experience of life. Old age, sickness, death, grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. We all have to experience the loss of loved ones in our lives, don't we? We, All of us have to, you know, be separated from from the loved. That's a a common human experience. We have to see our parents get old and die. We see our friends get old and die. We see people die before they're old. We have to put up with things we don't like, have to bear with situations that are unpleasant, have to be with what we don't, what we don't love is common human experience. Wanting things we don't have. And we, when we start looking at that which we have in common as human beings, then it, it's, it's the same. We, 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 can, we can feel compassion this sense of um, uh, karuna or compassion arises because we, we're seeing the common ground of our humanity. The, 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 oftentimes the sadness of it because there's a certain pathos to our human state, a natural sadness. Because on this level we all have to die, we all have to lose, we all have to be separated from what we love eventually. So it's just all we we have a reflection, and all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. I think that's a really sad reflection. (laughs) All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Then you read poetry, and you so much of poetry is about this this loss of the love. Or pop music, isn't it? The loss of the loved is, is, you know, it starts when you're a teenager, I think. Or as a child, I remember when, when my cat died when I, when I was about nine years old. Real grief. Sense of loss of the loved. The experience, say, of a pet that I loved died. And there was this real powerful grief. That's common, isn't it? That's a com- That's what we. That's common to all human beings. So, and then we all die. And then the end of our life, there's, we get old, and then we die. So this is. There's always this. 
in this in this realm that we're in, uh, the human realm, sensory realm, is is there is a natural sadness to it. It's not depressing. I'm not saying it's not nothing to get depressed about, but I should recognize that that this is that this is our this is this this is what being human is like. So we are prepared, we are willing to experience that and, and learn from it. Because loss of loved ones is and, and, and having to bear with what we don't like in life, having to learn to be more patient and accepting and having to, to put up with things that are unfair or having to just survive difficult situations and all that. Uh, are are not obstructions to enlightenment. All these things usually are, if used, if seen in the right way, are strengthening experiences. We gain. Life can destroy us if we just if we see it in the wrong way. Then we become we we kill ourselves, or we we be, we just take to drugs and drink, or we just watch television and play bridge till we die, like many people do. That's <laughs> what I hear in America, go and retire in Florida and play bridge and golf and watch television till they die. But as meditators, say, people that are, say, awakening to life, to the flow, the flux of, of, of experience. And so that's why we're not trying to, to find ourselves as a thing or as a person. We're not trying to, to conceive ourselves as being anything. And, and, and so the, the self that the Buddha is talking about, that we say is no self, is no self, not as a, not as a position to take. We're not saying anatta or no self. It's, it's a Buddhist doctrine, there's no self. And Buddhists can get very heavy on this. There's a, in Sri Lanka, for example, they, they say, the Buddha taught no self, no soul, no God. <laughs> they get very... You know, they really, we don't believe in God, and we, there's no soul, no self. And, and this is, uh, notice the, the emphasis is, you better believe this. This is what a Buddhist really believes. You take this position, and, and somebody talks about God, and you say, there's no God. And you talk, the soul of it, there's no soul. <laughs> Things are just arising and ceasing, coming. <laughs> What about love? And uh, it's just a condition. It's unsatisfactory. It's dukkha. <laughs> Don't get attached to it. <laughs> the hard line, fundamentalist. <laughs> because uh, that when we when we when we grasp Buddhist teachings, then you know that we're even though he says, you know, the point is to to to. To let go of things, we can grasp even the idea of letting go. So you can say, 
uh, you should let go of everything <laughs> as, a, as a command. Let go of everything. Don't get be attached to anything. And then you say, why, well, you know, what one woman came to me one time, she said, you know, I don't think I can ever be a Buddhist because I love my children. <laughs> From the hardline fundamentalists, you say, let go of your children. <laughs> Which would be like what? Throw them out, throw them out of the house, drown them in the lake. <laughs> Just to prove you're not attached. <laughs> See, then then trying to 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 uh, convey to this lady the fact that uh, that. Uh, that letting go of one's children may be the way to really love your children. Which doesn't mean getting rid of them, but in, in, in letting them go, not holding on, not wanting them to be what you want, not, not always kind of interfering and trying to control and hang on to them. Isn't it? Because that's not love, is it? That's, that's a kind of need, a, you know, a personal selfish need. I want my children to be like this, and I want them to do this, and I want them to be like that, and I want them to do what I want, is not love. It's a, it's very selfish, kind of demanding for a personal for a personal benefit. So it's a changing the the view. If you really love somebody, you let you let go, meaning you let go of the perception of them. You. You're, you're letting go of your desire to hold on to them, or your desire, your your desires to control. You're letting go of that, uh, which means that then we can love because we're we're freeing the mind. For love is a is a relationship that comes out of, say, unselfishness, rather than love seen in the terms of. I want you and you're mine and no one else can have you kind of thing. Because that, that kind of, what we call that, that kind of love is, um, isn't love, is it? it's kind of neurotic need, attachment, grasping, all the things that, that will inevitably bring suffering. Because when we try to hold on to somebody and demand and and control them, then we create the conditions for them to hate us. Then we we all hate, don't we? We none of us want to be uh, possessed by somebody else, or to be <coughs> under their control, or to be dominated, or intimidated, or pressured by somebody else. No matter how much they say it's true love, it's not. So, just reflecting on, say, the experience of love, human experience of love, as some, you know, as we, is maybe not is is not what we think it is in terms of of uh, attachment, but of non-attachment.
towards oneself, for example, the the uh, with the metta practice, we always start with 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 yourself. May say, may I abide in well-being. That's and wishing. It's 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 having a a positive attitude towards this this creature here. And it and it's a uh, uh, and sometimes this is quite difficult for people because they remember when I first came to England, the people many English people found metta was usually presented in a very kind of superficial, sentimental way, which they didn't like. So you know, you think, may I be happy? And and something people here found that a bit silly. You know, sitting there, may I be happy? And <laughs> may bring out their cynical side. And and yet, wishing may all beings be happy, they could do that. People all like the idea of, may, I want you all to be happy, you know, wishing well for everyone else. But uh, there, there can be a resistance or to, to uh, spending time with yourself, thinking about yourself in a positive way. Because idealistically, maybe we, we think that's a waste of time. We think helping others is good. Going out and helping the Hutus and Tutsis. Going and, and, and you know, when we hear of some, something, some miserable situation, we'll want to go out and do something about it. And uh, we, we often, uh, here in Britain, we get concerned about the whales and about the, the dolphins and about the different creatures around us. But what about ourselves? And so we think maybe any kind of self-concern is selfishness. Maybe you're all selfish coming here to this meditation retreat. You're sitting here just like this. You're not doing anything for anybody. You do some work in the morning. (laughs) 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 But the rest of the day you're sitting like this. (laughs) What good is that for anybody? How's that helping the Tutsis and Hutus? So you're, you can see it as a, as, as a selfish act, as something, you know, that is just getting obsessed with yourself. Which it could be. One can just get kind of so filled up with uh, interest in oneself that, that uh, you have no interest in anyone else, admittedly. But with this, this practice of meditation, you're developing that reflexive ability to to observe, to witness, to see things. And so you can let go of the causes of suffering that always create this alienation, this strife and difficulties within your mind and within yourself. And then, uh, then of course, it, it projects outward. If I'm divided, confused within myself, then, then I relate to you in, a, in, in that way. And that and if you're not centered and, and wise within, then you get confused. So I spread confusion, alienation, division, all that around me. And then that spreads out to 
the society. So we, this is why we have Hutus and Tutsis, and why European Union always has Im- having problems, disagreements, and don't want the French to be to, to get the advantage of <laughs> the Germans, or you know, if somebody's going to all the old projections of the mind, but it starts from within, isn't it? It starts with the with the with the wrong understanding, the wrong attitude towards yourself. So everything, say that the problems that manifest in the society and in the international uh, political problems uh, and economy, they all they all start from within the, the mind of individual human beings. It's the ignorance of the way things really are. So we operate from political positions, from from biases, from religious prejudices, like the Sunnis and Shiites in, in Islam, or the Catholics and Protestants in Christianity. Now, in the, with mindfulness, then, then, these, then these perceptions are, can be skillfully used. It doesn't mean we have to all become Buddhists and practice meditation at Amravati to get it straight. <laughs> but it means that we can uh, learn how, to, how, uh, how the human mind works, like we're, we're, we're observing, we're listening, we're watching the suffering and the causes of the suffering, des- attachment to desire. And that attachment to desire blinds us, so we get caught up into this, these desires, which can be desire to, like, to get rid of jealousy. Which sounds like a good desire, doesn't it? To, to get rid of my faults. I want to get rid of anger. I want to get rid of jealousy. I want to get rid of fear. And, and that sounds, in a way, right. You know, that, that's a good thing to do. We, should, we shouldn't, these are bad things to have, and we should get rid of them. But that, that very perception of I am somebody who has these faults and I must do something in order to get rid of these faults. And the result of taking that position is that we always fail at it. We always end up feeling despair and disappointment with life, operating from this position of I am a person with these problems, and I've got to do something in order to get rid of them. I shouldn't be like this. I should be like, you know, this ideal I have of what, what I should be. But I'm not like that. I've got this jealousy. I've got this anger. I've got this, these emotions that are. That I shouldn't have. So we listen to that. Uh, listen to, 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 to the what you think you are. Just listen, like you're, like you're listening to somebody else talking. You're not judging it. You're not, you're not kind of making side comments or, or passing kind of value judgments or moral judgments. You're just listening, trying to get a feeling for this, for what the self view really is. 
what it feels like to be some, to be a, a person. So that it's what I call this this inner listening. I listen to to my personality. It goes on in in uh, in its various habits and ways of thinking and reacting. Listening, paying attention to it, not not participating in it, you know, not not judging it in any way, but merely listening. So you get a feeling for what that is, and you're also the sense of listening objectifies it. You're seeing it as something separate from you. You're listening to it rather than that where when you start thinking I shouldn't think like this, I shouldn't feel like this, then you then you're 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 reacting to it and and you that reaction of course you're involved in it. You're you're getting caught up into uh, into the uh, emotional conditioning. Then, say, bringing attention back to the present, to using this centering process of the breath, the, the body, the silence, to, to, so that you, you have a place to, say, ground yourself, and then you can then, then try to uh, or center yourself this, uh, of, of just this a listening, watching, knowing position. The Buddha seeing the Dhamma is the is the is the is the pattern. Being that which is listening, knowing things for what they are. So, listening to your own personality, your emotional reactions to things. You're, 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 say, then you're able to, to see the, the Dhamma of it, of what arises ceases and is not self. You see, emotional reactions are not self. Even though they might be saying that they're you, they're not. They're not really what. So remember, in uh, monastic life, I had this. Uh, uh, I found uh, after about five or six years, I started having these kind of rushes of kind of things like like really strong emotional reactions to things, and. Uh, I want to live. I want to, well, you know, you get kind of this sense of I, I want to, I want to live. I want to experience things. I want. I don't want to, because there was this, like living in a monastery and and practicing meditation. There was this. It began to have this sense of, of that, that I wasn't living. That I was dying. And uh, and then then the emotional. Uh, reaction was, I want to live. Got to leave. Got it out. <laughs> and then 
listening to this, listening to this this kind of thing in my mind, it would uh, I could see that it was it was just an emotional reaction, and yet it was it seemed so real, you know, it was full of myself, full of me and what I want and I want to live. It was at a very powerful uh, emotional. Uh, there's, there's a lot of emotional power operating in it, but the watcher, the developing of the watcher, the listener, I could see then was was I developed it to a stronger point where I could could see the, these very powerful emotions in terms of dhammas, the rising and ceasing. Because they are their habits, the emotional habits of fears, desires, and they're very convincing and very, uh, and and that's what we tend to uh, identify with very strongly is these emotions. Now the emotional nature, then say with, with letting go, with say non-attachment and letting go. We don't become a kind of cold-hearted, chilly type of human being. You know, you just say, the fundamentalist Buddhist that says, it's all suffering and everything that arises ceases, everything is impermanent, and all love is just a delusion, and it's uh, not that. You're not, you're not coming from a position against anything, but there's awareness of the flow and flux of existence, of what's happening, of what's, what you're experiencing that through this conscious form. And then because there isn't attachment to it anymore, there's, there's no longer, there's no longer uh, say, creating delusions around it, then, then say the, the human state is uh, what manifests through us are love and compassion, joyfulness, these beautiful qualities. Of, they, they're called the divine abodes in the, the Brahma Viharas. They're like divine qualities. And uh, the, of what, loving kindness, metta, karuna, mudita. Mudita is, is joy, sympathetic joy. Upeka is equanimity or serenity. So you aren't becoming just a a cold uh, kind of person shut off from life by just dismissing everything as impermanent and suffering and not self. Because that's a rejection, isn't it? That's using Buddhist teachings to to justify your own rejection of everything. You're just dismissing life. And there's no liberation in that. But in the actual practice, <coughs> right understanding of, of the Dhamma, then, then uh, say, our lives, there's a fulfillment in it, in this human form. And our relationships are then increasingly more, uh, say, more 
in the experience of metta karuna mudita upeka, then then uh, the grasping, rejecting, demanding, commanding, jealous, frightened ways that we uh, furtive ways that we tend to to react to each other uh, when when our emotions uh, say undeveloped or on or unresolved emotions dominate consciousness. When you say like the the experience of love in this human human experience of love word the English word is a very powerful word actually even though it's used for almost anything. So I mean it's it's uh, it's not a a very accurate term because <laughs> it's used for for oftentimes for things like l- loving ice cream or something like that, <laughs> or it can mean just lust. You know, we say we love somebody, really we just feel lust towards them. But they taking it to to its uh, say the divine level, or the purity of the human heart, the purity of the mind. Then love is a natural uh, way of relating because there's no selfish interest anymore. They 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 love is in its pure form means that the. We're not asking. It's not. There's no. In, there's no self-investment or demand. So non-attachment and selflessness is where love manifests, and where greed and lust manifest. And neurotic needs are through the twisted emotions of that that are always trying to control and possess, manipulate the conditioned realm. So contemplate this in, in the, this in your own relationships and and that as, as you begin to have be able to to listen to things and to not make judgments about whether you love somebody or not or whether you're self selfish or selfless. But as you as you're more willing to listen and pay attention to the flow of that's going through your consciousness, then you'll 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 you'll, you'll naturally understand the insights come that are, or come from that non-grasping and from that willing to to listen to pay attention to life. There's nothing. That's why. In the beginning, we took the refuge, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, to give you a place of safety to where you, you you're, you're not just caught up in in trying in just self-preservation or just trying to survive and or defend yourself as a personality. And that's the value of the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. As you contemplate that more and more, it gives you a sense of of, of having a very strong supporting refuge in which 
you can look in and, and feel life, which we don't dare do when we're caught up in, in, in it on, the, on a personal basis because we're too frightened by it. There's too much pride and fear and, and too much danger on a personal level to, to be able to really trust in, in, in it and to watch the flow of, of our conscious experience. So, you notice there's so much controlling and defensiveness and, and that to, to people's lives because they, they don't have a refuge other than in maybe uh, just trying to control things, keep things, you know, not look at this and try to hold everything in, in a way that you can cope with it. And then, <laughs> and then things happen and you lose control <laughs> and, you, and you feel that uh, life is a, is, a, is, a, is a terrible thing that's happened to you, it's dreadful. <laughs>